You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The mutineers would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for the collapse of the flow. There is, of course, a legal standard way within the guilds for a crew to mutiny, a protocol that has lasted for centuries. A senior crew member, preferably the executive officer or first mate, but possibly the chief engineer, chief technician, chief physician, or in genuinely bizarre circumstances, the owner's representative, would offer the ship's imperial adjunct a formal bill of grievances pursuant to a mutiny consistent with guild protocol. The imperial adjunct would confer with the ship's chief chaplain, calling for witnesses and testimony if required, and the two would, in no later than a month, either offer up with a finding for mutiny or issue a denial of mutiny. In the case of the former, the chief of security would formally remove and sequester the captain of the ship who would face a formal guild hearing at the ship's next destination with penalties ranging from loss of ship, rank, and spacing privileges to actual civil and criminal damages leading to a stint in prison or, in the most severe cases, a death sentence. In the case of the latter, it was the complaining crew member who was bundled up by the chief of security for the formal guild hearing, etc., 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 Obviously, no one was going to do any of that. John Scalzi's novels include Old Man's War, Agent to the Stars, The Android's Dream, The Ghost Brigades, and The Last Colony. His new novel is The Collapsing Empire. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you for having me. John, when I was but a lad, I remember discovering the novels of Jack Vance, and I just loved them. And this brought back that combination of big screen space opera, Mm -hmm great humor, and in plots that take us right back to where we live. Talk about your experience as a, with space opera. When did you first read one? Uh, you know, I think probably the first one I would have read or, or that would have qualified as a space opera was actually a Heinlein juvenile. I think it was Citizen of the Galaxy um, because it had spaceships. It had galaxy-spanning civilizations. Uh, all that sort of stuff. And uh, so that was the one that, uh, you know, uh, captured my attention. Um, and then after that, um, you know, you go back to, again, some more Heinlein with Starship Troopers or, um, you know, some of the other ones. But uh, quite frankly, uh, I didn't read a whole lot of space opera growing up. It wasn't until I was really uh, an adult that I really kind of dove into that particular genre. Wow, that's really interesting because you're so good at it. I think one of the things you bring to the science fiction genre in general is terseness. Yes. <laughs> this is a huge, huge deal. <laughs> Your entire Old Man's War series could fit between the covers of some books that are probably too long to read. Well, How do you manage that to restrain your story style while having this huge universe? Well, I mean, actually, I think that it's an offshoot of the fact that I was a uh, – journalist for a number of years where you get used to writing to whatever news hole there was available. <laughs> you would go in and you'd have to write the story and your, uh, you know, your editor would say you have eight column inches, you know, or something like that, which would translate to maybe about 400 words and you have to get all of it in. So you learn how to uh, write to speed, write concisely, and still try to pack uh, some sort of uh, stylistic punch there. So I think it's that. Um, And then also the other thing is I was a movie critic for a number of years, 
And so basically, I would watch uh, seven or eight movies a week. Um, and over time, uh, my, my story sense really developed out of watching uh, that. My writing school, if you want to call it that, was, was film. Um, and film is fairly terse. You have to get a lot in um, with, with not a lot of words. Um, so when it came time to start writing novels, um, those two things combined and uh, we get the, the books we have. I remember I sent uh, Old Man's War and Agent to, to the Stars to my um, agent when I was shopping for an agent. He was my prospective agent at the time. And I remember him coming back. He says, these are good. I'd be happy to represent you. But you got to tell me, are, were these written as, as screenplays first? And the answer was no. They were always written as novels, but they were written as novels um, by someone uh, who basically was schooled in film. Wow, that's so interesting. For me, the this book is, is the latest in your series, and I was able to just drop right into it to completely grok this. And that's because the future, we like to think of the future as being so totally and completely different from the past, yet it's often generally buried underneath and concealed within the past. And so th at the very beginning of this book, we, we find ourselves in a situation that many of us might find ourselves in now, which is somebody taking care of an aging parent who's about to die, sure. or which there can be nothing done. Human condition is not that malleable. Well, no, the thing, I, the way I like to say it is it doesn't matter how much technology you have, uh, the human animal is running 1.0 software that was developed 40,000 years ago. So, you know, quite honestly, unless we do massively disruptive things with our genome or, you know, uh, introduce cybernetic implants and all this sort of stuff, which is not out of the question, but, um, but unless we do that, um, evolution is really, really slow. So in the next 1,000 or 1,500 years, like when the collapsing empire would take place, or 10,000 years or even 20,000 years, we're not going to change substantially. Um, and this is why, for example, you know, we can read the Greek myths and have the gods uh, be recognizable to us in their folly and in their you know, majesty or whatever, or how Shakespeare still affects us greatly even though the language has shifted enough that sometimes it's impenetrable to the first time uh, people experience it. Humans don't change. Our circumstances change. Our ability to affect our uh, circumstances and environment change, but we are still the tribal primates that wandered around on the savanna uh, 40,000 years ago. And we managed a peaceful transition of power, as do the characters in your book. And this is something, again, that I like the way that you have created a universe that at once is completely foreign. You have an exciting, uh, really great plot with people in peril. Mm -hmm. but. As I read it, I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> they're still doing that stuff. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, well, I mean, uh, again, look in the past. I mean, we're still doing stuff that people were doing 400, 600, 800, 1,000 years ago. Um, you know, um, some of the best parallels to what we're doing politically right now uh, might be uh, what happened with the Romans 2,000 years ago. I mean – 
uh, once again, <laughs> I mean, we are who we are as a people. So, um, and I think that that's fine. I mean, there's occasionally people uh, will approach me and go, why do you have your characters sound like, you know, they basically just came out of Starbucks? Um, and the answer is one, I mean, it makes it easier to read so you can get into it. But the second thing is because fundamentally, um, you know, uh, if you were took someone from 1600 and raised them today, you know, they would be coming out of Starbucks too. Um, so, <laughs> and, you know, same with someone 500 years from now. So, I mean, I don't uh, sweat, you know, uh, too much unless there's a, a specific effect that I'm going to, uh, the colloquial use of language or anything else like that because um, I'm writing for people today. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm always confused when they're like, you know, we should have evolved out of that by now. It's like you don't really don't understand evolution, do you? <laughs> um, for me, I thought the, your take on science on this, in this book was really, really interesting. Science in science fiction is often we uh, – I mean, done by extrapolation. We have this and we take this and it gets better and bigger and faster. In your book, what the the science extrapolation that goes on is that uh, humans, no matter how advanced their science, no matter how advanced their society, society has really good at ignoring science <laughs> if it's inconvenient. Well, it's not just science that is uh, convenient ignoring. Um, it ignores pretty much anything that's inconvenient. I mean, we are, we are, you know, it's what separates us from the rest of the, of, uh, the animal kingdom, our ability to ignore stuff we don't want to see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, science in this particular case, it's not being ignored because it is science. It is being ignored because it is inconvenient. It is suggesting that uh, massive systematic change is about to happen that will disrupt life as we know it. Uh, and most people just don't want to deal with that. I mean, it could, you know, it might not have been science. It might have been politics or it might have been, um, you know, a religion or something like that. Anything that, that brings on or has the potential to bring massive systematic change. People are going to avoid thinking about it generally um, until the very, very last minute. And this it shouldn't be too surprising. I mean, people break up from relationships all the time because they just kept ignoring, you know, signs that the relationship was going south. It's just, we won't think about it. And if we don't think about it, then it won't happen. And we'll just ignore it and just keep doing what we usually do. And all you do in that case is extend a bad relationship a couple more years before you finally break. Um, so again, that's not, it's, it's human nature. I mean, it sounds like I'm being, you know, really, uh, pessimistic about human nature. I don't think it's particularly pessimistic. I just think it is. I mean, uh, I don't like thinking about things that I find tremendously inconvenient and I'm one of the smartest people I know. Um, but, um, so, I mean, if I can't, if I can happily, um, you know, uh, put off, until next Tuesday, things I should really be addressing today. I can't be surprised when anybody else does it. Your universe is called the interdependency. And that word alone speaks volumes in terms of how you see the world today, how you see the world of the future, and how you see your place in the world, I think. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean... Uh, well, tell us about the interdependency and what, what you mean by that. Well, the interdependency is the idea... Uh, in this p particular political system, um, there's basically a whole bunch of uh, human uh, systems um, that are connected by uh, faster-than-light 
uh, conduit called the flow. And each of those systems um, don't usually have habitable planets around it uh, because the flow goes where it goes and you sort of get what you get. Um, but people create um, habitats or dig under planets to uh, you know, have domed cities or whatever. Um, and each of them in and of itself uh, is not able to be self-sufficient, but all put them all together and they're able to do it. So there's an independency. And that sounds sort of great, like, oh, kumbaya, we all get together. But at the top of it, I mean, the interdependency doesn't happen just because uh, it's a requirement for everybody to survive. It happens because um, there is a group of what you what we would probably call one percenters who said, you know, we can make out like bandits um, if we find a way to control uh, the way people get in and out of the flow and, um, you know, uh, go around. Um, so basically what they do is they create a basically rent-seeking system where every time you pop out of the flow into one of these uh, uh, systems to do trade, they take a cut off the top. Uh, and they, buy, they get buy-in from everybody by giving the um, most – uh, politically connected and powerful families monopolies on specific things like lemons or beef or electronics or whatever. Um, and, th and by doing that, they basically uh, bribe their way into complicity with this uh, interdependent system. So on one sense, it can you could say interdependency is, is the example that we all do depend on each other, which is true even now. Um, but in a more cynical way, uh, it also says that any system of dependencies will inevitably find people who will exploit those dependencies to their own benefit, um, which is not so great, honestly. It sounds like there are, in the future they are all wearing I'm with Putin T-shirts. Mm. Well, I mean, oligarchies or arist uh, aristocracies or, um, you know, just the fact that, you know, there's always going to be people who are supremely motivated to have the most. Um, and, it, you know, right now we've got Putin, but, you know, you, you had Louis XIV or you had the Marcos. You know, it's you change the decade, you'll have a different name that goes there, I suppose. Uh, you could say the current president is one of those folks, you know, however you want to slice it up. Um, again, um, that's part of, uh, I think, uh, human society and human nature, that there are some people who are driven to have. And uh, that uh, the fact of the having uh, and then once having the fact of, you know, continuing to grow the, what they have um, sometimes uh, or often to the expense of millions and billions of other people um, is, just a, is, is just a persistent feature um, that eventually leads to uh, problems. Problems that turn out turn into a toe-tapping, snappy plot that is really turning this into a page-turner. One of the things that makes your book so much fun mm -hmm. is, is your sense of fun. You are in this for the fun. You are having fun as a writer, I can tell. Sure. And we are having fun as readers. And this all gets down to your all-important sense of snark. <laughs> Do you, like, say this stuff out loud as you're writing it or before you write it? No, I mean, uh, I mean, I've I've been living with me long enough that I don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, but the but the thing is, is that that's just a, an aspect of my personality. That uh, there's some uh, part of me um, that's always quippy. I mean, and, and when I was younger, it could get me in a lot of trouble um, because the desire to say something quippy. 
um, at the expense of acknowledging an actual moment, an, an, an actual emotional moment or whatever, um, meant that I would often screw up. I, I always say, um, or I have the saying that the uh, failure mode of clever is asshole, right? <laughs> Um, and I was one for quite a lot because I was always going for the clever. Now, as time goes by, um, you know, that uh, innate sense of mine to go for the quip has uh, been beneficial when writing dialogue and when uh, writing so that you do have sar- uh, snark and sarcasm and quips and stuff like that. But even in writing, as with real life, you can't just do it, you know, like a fire hose all the time. It has to be leavened with actual emotional moments. You have to have the ebb and flow of, of a story. Um, the the snark serves the story, not the story serves the snark. Um, because too much snark is like smelling a rose, you know, for 20 minutes. After the first minute and a half, it's, you, don't, you don't feel it anymore. Um, so for me, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you like the snark. I mean, that's, that's part of what I do. But if that was all I did... Um, then I would write very bad books. I would agree, but that's not all you're doing. And so talk about you've created this vast universe mm-hmm. as a backdrop. Sure. Um, talk about creating the characters in there who will capture our hearts and our reading hearts, keep us reading, keep us entertained, mm-hmm. and putting them in a plot that allows them to walk around and talk about the kind of things that uh, you're thinking about. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that uh, it doesn't matter how great your ideas are. If you don't have people that uh, readers actually like, <laughs> they're going to put the book down. Um, and this is something that science fiction has uh, often struggled with because uh, we like to flatter ourselves by saying we're the literature of ideas. And that's all well and good, but if your literature of ideas is presented by cardboard characters who can barely uh, who barely resemble um, actual human beings, that's going to be a problem. Um, in this particular case, uh, with the Collapsing Empire, I have three protagonists. I have um, I have the new emperor, which is a gender nonspecific word for emperor, um, Cardinia. I have a uh, basically a rich scion of a mercantile family named Kivalagos, and I have a scientist uh, named uh, Mars Claremont. And each of them... Um, I wanted to make really distinct from from the others. Mars is like most scientists who's analytical. He's careful. You might even say he's a little bit cautious. You know, he has um, – he's really interested in his numbers and his science. And when he has to approach other humans, you know, he's sometimes a little bit hesitant about that. Uh, the emperor, uh, Grayland II, um, didn't expect to be – uh, put in the position of power that she was, uh, she, but the uh, actual heir uh, managed to get himself killed and she was kind of thrust in the limelight. So she's a little bit uncertain about what she has to do, but at the same time uh, realizes that she has to pick up the mantle of power or other people will do it for her. And then finally there's Kivit Lagos, who is probably the most fun character uh, oh, I've yeah. ever had, and, 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 and the most fun writing. She is absolutely delightfully profane. She has... She is a badass. Yeah, she's a badass, and she has no filter, and she's fun to read. But the thing I tell people is, like, she's fun to read, and she's fun to spend time with in a book. But if she were your friend and she called you, you would look at your phone going, do I, do I really want to pick this up? Do I really... <laughs> 
Do I really want to? Uh, this is so. She's so much work. And then you wouldn't pick it up. And then she would immediately text, going, "I know you're there, asshole. Pick up the phone." Right? That's the sort of person she is. Um, but you want to make them all distinct, and you want to make them distinct. And even uh, when at times they can be unsympathetic, you also want them to be uh, interesting, and you want to have uh, the readers, if not necessarily identify with them, but at least see uh, the value of having them there. Um, and I think it's good to have three distinct personalities going back and forth, uh, chapter by chapter, moving things along um, so that everybody can have their uh, character that they like the most um, and continue on with the, the, the story that way. Um, so for I me, pick a favorite. To be well, you know, the I mean, that, I like them all. <laughs> that's okay. Um, but for me, that I mean, that's the thing is again. Um, I mean, I think I have some. You know, it's like the the idea of the flow is really cool. The idea of the interpendency is really cool. But ultimately, the way that readers are going to interface with all of this stuff um, is through the characters. So for me, um, you know, science fiction isn't just the literature of ideas. Science fiction is the literature of people having to deal with those ideas. Nonfiction is the literature of ideas. <laughs> well, no, everything's the literature of ideas. Yeah, you know, this, you know, yeah. this is the, you know, uh, romance is the literature of ideas. Western is the literature of ideas. Fantasy is the literature of ideas because they are all started with someone having an idea and expressing it through through language. I mean, the, the fact that uh, science fiction arrogates itself as the literature of ideas um, is a little rich. I mean, I, if, <laughs> if I was going to say that what the science fiction is the literature of, um, science fiction is the liter- literature of, uh, of, of consequences, of you create these ideas um, and then you uh, do the, you know, uh, you extrapolate the consequences of these ideas. Um, you know, somebody else, and I can't remember who, Corey would know, Corey Doctor would know if he were here right at this moment, um, says, you know, science, uh, science fiction isn't just about thinking about, you know, the, the car. It's thinking about the sexual revolution that happens because of the car, um, because now people can drive out to the drive-ins and, and make out for, you know, hours at a time. And, you know, the social revolution that comes because of that. Science fiction is the two steps forward. Science fiction is the literature of consequences. Um, and if, so if you're going to say anything, that's where, where I would say science fiction goes. We left out one character I also really loved, which was Granny, and I'm cannot I'm not gonna take a Nohama Peaton. Okay. Granny Nohama Peaton. He's a perfect example of a of a character we see in his book and we see in our lives all too often. Mm-hmm. And this is a personality type that I guess at this point you'd have to call him it's an asshole personality. Oh yeah. And this Absolutely. is a person who's I would say is north of jerk. But mm-hmm. south of sociopath. Right. And I think it's a real, actual kind of syndrome. Mm-hmm. I think that um, 20 years hence, uh, it'll be in the uh, DSM. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I mean, and, uh, you know, it's the, it's the people who have more ambition than sense uh, who are uh, more uh, concerned with their own goals than the social good, um, who have the ability to rationalize Everything they do for one thing or another um, by saying, well, actually, I am the hero of this particular story um, and <laughs> who, you know, on a day-to-day basis can be 
perfectly socialized, perfectly charming, perfectly witty, perfectly able to get along. Um, but yeah, over the course of time, you're like, yep, you're an asshole and I don't want to spend any time with you at all. Now, what's really interesting to me in this particular case is that uh, he, uh, Granny Nohema Piton and Kivalagos are really the same, you know, are, are, are two sides of the asshole coin, right? Mm-hmm. Except one of them is our asshole and the other one isn't. <laughs> uh, and that, we always love ours, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we always like our asshole. It's like, well, this is my friend and she's an asshole, but she's my asshole. Um, <laughs> And we, you know, and we all have that one friend, just as ah. we all have that one guy who's like, we don't ever want to spend any sort of time with you. We'll, we'll smile and nod and wave and otherwise find a way to make sure we're on the other side of the party, no matter where that guy is. I um, mean, that's and, and that's Granny. Uh, it, I, I like the sense of uh, the way the society works. And one of the things that you have in here is arranged marriages. Another thing that doesn't go away, but I think that, that the, that's a way of kind of trying to apply, in a sense, science to our uh... – well, I mean the it's a political marriage. It's a mm-hmm. dynastic marriage, which is at the center of the discussion here, mm-hmm. right, uh, in, in the collapsing empire. Um, I don't suspect that most marriages happen as, an, as arranged marriages in this particular universe. But one of the things when you get up to the higher echelons of imperial – aristocracy is, you know, people marrying families together for benefit and so on and so forth. Um, and to some extent, you see that even reflected in our, you know, uh, you know, in our current times. It's, you know, it's very rare for someone of a particular, um, you know, socioeconomic strata um, to you know, fall in love with the shopkeeper, you know, or, or something like that. It just doesn't happen. It's the it's the old thing of, you know, why do um, actors, uh, you know, date supermodels and vice versa? And one answer is because they can. But the more accurate answer is that's because who they know, right? That's who they spend time with. You know, those are the people who they see socially um, and that they have the opportunity to uh, actually say, hey, would you like to go on a date with? In the case of an aristocracy like this, obviously, you know, the people that you're going to see are the other scions of major families and you're going to look at things dynastically and uh, these families are going to look to maximize, uh, you know, alliances and so on and so forth. Um, I've known a couple of people um, from very traditional backgrounds who have had, had arranged marriages um, and I find them problematic in all sorts of ways. Uh, but um, fundamentally, among the people I know that have had arranged marriages, presuming that everybody, no one was coerced into it, um, their success rate is no greater or lesser than any other sort of marriage, <laughs> um, which suggests um, it suggests all sorts of things about humans and marriages and, and relationships and so on and so forth. Um, but I, yeah, again... That's what um, science fiction is for. Oh, yeah. But yeah. And again, the uh, I'm not necessarily showing anything um, that is stunningly different, uh, merely uh, put into a slightly different context. Making it fun, engaging, and so you can actually see it. That's the thing. Sure. I mean, we, we're surrounded by these things all the time. We find them hard to see, but they're pretty 
pretty obvious in a science fiction novel. Well, I mean, that's because science fiction novels, like any novel, only show you the things that the author wants you to see. Mm. I mean, you can be... Magician, hey? Well, not even just magician, (laughs) but uh, magician, but they're architects. I mean, Mm. the, the simple fact of the matter is... Uh, novels and the universes they create, even if they feel epic in scope, um, are, you know, bottle universes, right? You you are walked through a story. The, you know, the uh, uh, the narrator, in this case me, would say, hey, look at that. That's actually kind of interesting. You go, oh, wow, that is actually interesting. Who knew? And, and all the rest of it, um, you know, you don't have time for because I like that. Wonder, nope, we got to keep going, keep moving. We got this other room that we need to be in. Um, so it's easy for us to, um, you know, make you see the things that we want to see and comment on the things we want you to comment on and so on and so forth. Uh, the real problem is when people forget that these bottle universes that we create in our novels actually are poor representations of the real world, which is messy and which has all bunch of different things going on in it, um, and start thinking that um, that they are actually good models for the real world and that everybody should act the way that these people do in this particular uh, novel because this novel just seems – everybody seems to have just gotten it right. It's like, yeah, that just means that you have a reasonably competent – um, that you have a reasonably competent uh, author who makes it <laughs> seem inevitable. Uh, most times, you know, you don't necessarily want to live in a universe or a novel uh, or a universe that a novel creates because those universes tend to be fairly high drama where lots of, of, of terrible things to live through happen. They're interesting to read. You wouldn't want to live through them. You don't. I mean, it's called the collapsing empire for a reason. The empire is literally collapsing, and it's great to 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 read and go. Oh wow! I can't wait to find out what happens next. Just be glad you don't live there. John, you started out your life as a movie critic. Your first novel was compared to a screenplay. Is anybody smart enough to have snapped these up and started producing them? We have a number of things that are under development, um, but under development uh, is an extraordinarily nebulous <laughs> phrase. Um, and, you know, in some cases, they've been under uh, uh, some of these things have been under development literally for years. Um, other ones, we have just now collapsing empire, for example, has just now been optioned by a working title for television, um, and so. Uh, it's a it's a it's a crapshoot. The way that I tell people is the time to get excited about something being optioned for television or something being optioned for screen is when you are actually sitting down in front of the screen and it literally comes up on on the screen. Um, or in the case of TV series, the time that I tell people to get excited is season three, you know, because then you know it's it's actually going to last. Um, so we currently I have like six things under development that are actively under development at the moment. Whether any of them will show up is is, is a crapshoot. If they do, that's great. Um, if they don't, um, then yeah, I will, I'm no worse off than I am uh, right now, and no one else is any worse off uh, than they are. You know, as long as they have the book. So there's lots of uh, we'll, we will basically it is we will see. I've been speaking with John Scalzi. His new book is The Collapsing Empire. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.